grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We, uh, on vacation this past week, we were, took a tour of Boone Plantation or Boone Hall Plantation, and one of the presentations was a, uh, a lady giving a little history of the Gula uh, language and Gula culture, which was among the slaves there, and we were in the old slave house, and she was talking about that, and it was interesting that in her, in her presentation, she said, you know, there was once a, trade, a slave trader who uh, encountered God through the midst of a storm, and in that storm, he came to know Christ, and, and does anybody know his name? And uh, I knew his name, John Newton. One other lady knew it, too, that shouted out the same time I did. And then she said, and he wrote a song. And they said, amazing grace. And yes, I thought it was kind of neat that in the midst of that presentation on uh, a very dark part of our history, in in a very real sense of the word, there was a a discussion of God's grace. There was a discussion of what happened in John Newton's life when he came to know Christ through the midst of a storm, turned himself around, stopped the slave trade business. It's hard to say. And, uh, And turned to Christ and became not only a minister of the gospel, but also wrote that wonderful, wonderful hymn that we sing regularly and play regularly around here, Amazing Grace, how sweet, how sweet the sound. Well, we're coming into a section now in John's gospel where the grace of God is going to shine very brightly. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. There was a real temptation today to do the entire chapter, all 57 verses of it. And uh, I knew that the choir wasn't singing today, so I had an extra five or ten minutes there I could uh, utilize or whatever, but uh, I, I resisted that temptation. We're gonna, only going to talk about the first 16 verses and uh, maybe the totality of it next week. I'd like to get it in next week if possible. I'd, we're we're going to get Lazarus in the grave today. I'd kind of like to get him out of it before uh, I have to take a couple of weeks off for that surgery. So anyway, we'll see if that works. If not, we'll get him out of the grave when I come back, uh, and the guys will be tempted to try to get him out while I'm gone, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, in this passage, there's a, there's a real shift in the, in, the, in the narrative that John has given us. Up until now, we've seen all sorts of different encounters that, the, that Jesus had with with the Jewish leaders, with the people. Uh, Two weeks ago when we looked at the end of of chapter 10, we saw that that there Jesus has done more miracles, more teaching. He's claimed to be the Son of God. He said, the Father and I are one. He's made all these great claims of deity, all of which are true. And the people turned on him and said he was a blasphemer. And they said, we see your works and the works are okay, but it's because you claim equality with God that we call you a blasphemer and we want to put you to death. And they wanted to do that. They, they sought to seize him. They sought to stone him. They wanted to get rid of him as quickly as they could. But in verse, 40, uh, verse 39 of chapter 10, John says, but he eluded their grasp. And he left the area of Jerusalem, he left the area of Judea, and he went out to a place where John had been baptizing. And when he went there, he stayed there, and he taught there for a while. And, and, and the people were saying, you know, we, we heard John, we listened to John, we believed what John was saying, but John did no signs like this man does. 
John did nothing in that way, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, is true. Everything John said about the coming of the Messiah, everything that John said about what he would be like, what his character would be like, the miracles he would do as signs of his Messiahship, everything that John said about this man was true and is true. And it says there in the Transjordan, across the Jordan River, there many believed in him. And and that's where John leaves us. Then in chapter 11... We pick up again with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother. Now, I had Brother Todd read this morning that passage out of Luke's gospel where Jesus had gone into Mary and Martha's home. Lazarus isn't mentioned in that passage, but he had gone in there. And, and you know the story about they were thrilled to have Jesus in their house. Whether they were believers at that time or not, we don't know. But they were certainly enthralled with what he had to say and what he was doing. And so Jesus went into their house, and they began to care for him. And Martha got all flustered over being sure that everything was perfect and the meal was just right. And they had an honored guest in their home, and she was flitting about doing all sorts of things that were distracting her from what was important. But Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was listening She was being taught. She was soaking in everything that that Jesus had to say. And finally, Jesus had to tell Martha, listen, Martha, Mary has committed herself to the things that are really important, and you're all about doing these things that are so distracting, and you're not focusing on what is the truth and what you need to be focusing on. And, And we see him in that environment. Well, now he's back at their house, or he's, they're, they're coming back into the story. He's not back at their house yet. But I want you to follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, because there at the Transjordan, word comes to Jesus. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, implying that you know what's happened there already from what Luke has told you. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, I want you to realize we hadn't got to that yet. John is anticipating that everybody reading this letter, believers no doubt, knew what was going to happen a little later on. But he wanted to set that context. He He wants you to realize that this one Mary is going to do something in just a few days that is magnanimous and that is important in understanding the scope of the gospel message. So he just kind of throws it in. He'll talk about the actual fact in a few, de- in a few chapters. But he says, this is the Mary. She anointed the Lord with ointment. She wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother and, and Martha's brother who was sick, Lazarus. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. We know there that there was a relationship between Lazarus and Jesus. There was a, a friendship there that, was, uh, that he loved Lazarus. He cared about Lazarus, just as he does all of those who belong to him. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but it's to end for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, 
the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples looked at him, and, and, and they said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. If he's sleeping, surely that's a good thing, and he's, he's going to get better. So why do we need to go back? Finally, Jesus said, well, Jesus now had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, or the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. They recognized the danger. They knew the danger that awaited them when they got back to Jerusalem, back to Judea in the area of Jerusalem. They knew that the Jews were hunting for him. He had escaped them. He had evaded them. He had gotten away. But he, the disciples knew, Lord, we've never seen them as angry as they were this last time we were there. When you said you were the Son of God and when you claimed to be one with God, they became embittered. They became violent almost. They wanted to seize you. They wanted to kill you. They wanted to stone you. Lord, this is dangerous territory that you're wanting to go back into. And if what you say is right, that Lazarus has died, it's too late anyway. Don't you think we, we might as well just let them bury him, let them have the funeral, and us stay here at the Transjordan where it's much safer and, and much more comfortable for us? You know, those disciples are just like we are, aren't they? They're always looking for their comfort. They're always thinking about their safety. They're always thinking about, you know, if we really follow you, Lord, where you want to go, there's danger in it. Thomas even says so. Listen, well, let us go with him. He's determined to go back. Let us go back, and we'll just die with him there because we know that's what's going to happen. The disciples recognized that following Jesus was not a comfortable thing. That following Jesus many times put their own lives in jeopardy, put their own safety in jeopardy. They knew, Thomas at least had this insight that if we go back, he's going to die. And if we go back with him, they're probably going to take us right along with him. Now, ultimately, they didn't do that. Ultimately, they were pleased just to crucify Jesus and watch the disciples scattered like scared rats. But at this point, it appears that if we go back and we're identified with him, then we too will die right there alongside of him. And Thomas said, if that's our fate, let us do it. Let us go. Don't you know that Mary and Martha had seen so many times the miracles that Jesus had done? That they had seen him... Turn, or at least heard about him turning the water into wine. They had, had seen or heard about him healing the nobleman's son, and healing the nobleman's son was not, did not require his presence there. They asked him to come back, but they knew that in that case, he had said to the nobleman, go on back, your, your son is healed, your son is well. He didn't have to be present to bring about healing. They knew that. 
Don't you know that they were hoping at least if he wouldn't come back and, and endanger his life and endanger his disciples, that at least he would speak a word and say, listen, you go back, you who came to tell me Lazarus is sick, you go back and tell Martha and Mary that he's going to be fine, everything's going to be all right, and heal him from a distance. You know they knew that he could do that. They'd seen him heal the man at Bethesda who had been crippled since birth and, or for 30-something years and, and told him to take up his pallet and walk. They had, they had seen or heard of him feeding 5,000. They knew of him walking on water. They knew he healed a blind man since birth. And, and many people had, had believed in him on that. They, they knew all of these six signs that John has laid out for us in a very meticulous, almost legal, brief kind of way about what Jesus had done to give us an example of what the signs of his deity were, the signs of messiahship. They knew all that. They knew he didn't have to come back, but he could heal Lazarus. But he didn't. He let him die. And not only did he let him die, he stayed a couple of more days. There was no rush. There was no urgency. There was no crisis in Jesus' mind, when it came to, to Lazarus' death, sickness and death, he, he didn't jump up and say, oh, we got to get back. We can't let this happen. You know, as a matter of fact, he, he says, listen, this sickness is not going to end in death, ultimately. It did end in his death, but, but there was a resurrection. There was a, a, at least a temporary resuscitation. He brought Lazarus back. Now, Lazarus died again. We don't know exactly when, but it was not a resurrection like our Lord's resurrection, but it was something of a foreshadowing of it. But he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but it is to be for the glory of God. It is to be for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is that final sign that John is laying out for us. Now, others argue that, well, this is something John has sort of made up because none of the other gospel writers mention it none of the synoptics talk about it they just they talk about the death they look at his coming back to jerusalem in a little different light than john does but always remember the gospels don't contradict themselves they just give different viewpoints they give different angles of what they saw you know the old illustration if you were to go out and watch a wreck on 27 and 80 and on any given day you probably could uh, and, and you gave an eyewitness testimony to what you saw, and someone else gave an eyewitness testimony to what they saw, all the details would not be the same. You would have seen it from one angle, them from another angle, and you would have given different insight on what took place. And, and that's what we're seeing in these gospel writers. They're bringing out things to illustrate. They're bringing out things to point to different things. And, and John's main purpose as he expresses at the end of this book, John's main purpose is so that you may see that he is the Son of God and that you may believe that he is the Son of God and in believing you may be saved and have eternal life. Eternal life is that grand discussion that John always brings out. Everything he points to is Jesus saying, he who believes in me will have life and will have eternal life. If you believe on him, you will live forever. If you believe on him, you will have a relationship with him that will never, ever end. And, and so as John brings us back toward Jerusalem, as Jesus and his disciples make their way back toward Judea, back toward where the Jews are angry and ready for, to find him, he says, look, don't worry about Lazarus. 
this is not going to end ultimately in death, but it's going to end in the glory of God and in the Son of God being glorified by it. Now, there is good argument to say there's still one miracle yet to come. John has these seven signs, but there's a good argument to say there is an eighth sign, there's an eighth miracle. But that miracle is different from these miracles in that all of these seven that John chooses are miracles that Jesus speaks, that Jesus does, that Jesus performs. That grand miracle of coming out of the grave himself that we'll get to in a couple of months is, is set apart, totally separate, totally unique from anything else that happens. But Jesus said, here's the key. I want you to see God glorified, and I want you to see the Son of God glorified in what is taking place in Bethany. What is taking place at Martha and Mary's home? What is taking place in the death of, of Lazarus? He did die. He didn't just get sick. He didn't just look like he was dead. All the same things that are said about Jesus in his resurrection have been said about Lazarus at one time or another. You know, well, he really didn't he wasn't fully sick. No, he was sick. He was prepared fully for the grave. They wrapped him in grave clothes. They put him in the grave. They rolled the stone against it. And, and later on, uh, my favorite verse in all the Scripture, uh, just to say uh, from the King James, is they'll say, Lord, we can't roll away the stone. By now he stinketh. Love that word. By now he stinks. He's decayed. It's been four days. And he's there in the grave. But Jesus says, look, or John tells us that Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus, and when he heard, heard he was sick, he stayed two days longer where he was. No urgency, no crisis. Then after two days, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And here's where you see them understanding the danger. They said, Lord, Rabbi, Lord, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you just a few days ago, and you're going to go there again? Everything is moving toward Calvary. Everything is moving toward the grand sacrifice, the grand substitution. Everything is moving toward the reason for which he came. You see, all these things about turning water into wine and the nobleman's son being healed and the man at Bethesda and the 5,000 being fed and the walking on water and the healing of the blind man, all those are important markers. All those are important pointers. But none of them fulfill the purpose for which he came. Don't miss that. Don't miss that when you read the Gospels. Don't miss that all of these things that amaze the people and thrill the people and, and cause great crowds to follow after him and great crowds to want to go ahead and declare him to be king and run the Romans out and set up a whole new kingdom of David there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the fact that all of those things are pointing, but none of those things are his purpose. His teachings are great. We've heard four of his famous I am statements so far. We'll hear some more later in this chapter. But he, he said in verse six, or chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter uh, 8 again, he said, before Abraham was, I am. In chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd who does not lose a single sheep. 
who loves them and cares for them and nourishes them and watches over them. And I don't lose a one of them. No wolf or no false shepherd is going to get them out of my hands. They belong to me. I mean, all these things are, are important to understand, but they're only important to understand as you view Calvary. Everything's moving toward Calvary. Jesus is not afraid to go back because they were wanting to stone him because he knows that stoning will not be his end. He knows the prophecies that God has given through the ages that stoning will not be the end of him. It'll be on a tree. It'll be on a cross. It'll be between two thieves. And he will hang there as a common criminal for a purpose. For the purpose that John prophesied when he baptized Jesus and he went up out of the water and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think that was the worst omission out of the, the mini-series they did on the Bible some time ago. Uh, and, and I could have put up with a lot of the omissions they did. But when they had Jesus at the baptism and they did not have him coming out of the water and John saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the voice of God saying, Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When, when none of that took place, I thought they missed the whole point of the story. Because he's the Lamb of God. And every one of those knew it when John said that, that this was the one who would give his life as a sacrifice. This is the one who would fulfill all those little lambs been slaughtered for all those years as a, as a temporal atonement. This would be the perfect atonement. This would be not just a lamb. This would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rabbi, Lord, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and yet you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, this is interesting, he's not misstating here, are there not 12 hours in the day? He's thinking of from sunup to sundown, he's thinking about the time of light, differentiating between 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night, we always talk about a day being the totality of that, 24 hours, Jesus was not making some kind of scientific error here, he said, look, there's 12 hours when you can walk. And if you're walking in the light, walking in the day, you don't stumble because you see the light that is in this world. You see the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, in the darkness, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There's this, there's this implication back to his already statement uh, back in, in chapter 8 of, I am the light of the world. What he's saying to these disciples is, you follow me. You follow me and you won't stumble. You follow me and you won't fall in darkness. You follow me and you'll have the light of the world that shines in lightness and shines in darkness. There is no difference. You follow me and you will not stumble. See, they're worrying about stumbling. They're worrying about dying. They're worrying about being physically harmed. Jesus said, you just stick with me. Don't lose sight of me. Don't lose sight of my purpose. Don't lose sight of who I am. Don't lose sight of who you've put your trust in. You keep your eyes focused on me, and everything else will take care of itself. You won't stumble. He said our, our friend Lazarus is asleep, and, and i got to go so I can awaken him out of the sleep. And they said, Lord, if he's asleep, he's doing better. Jesus says, look, he's dead. 
I'm sure the disciples thought, well, if he's dead, we're too late anyway, Lord. You could have healed him. Have we gone back two days ago maybe, but now he's been dead for a while. And, and, and what can we do? Why go back? We go back so God may be glorified. We go back so that the Son of God may be glorified. We go back so there might be an exalting of who he is and they might see his power in its totality. Now, I want to tell you, when they see it, the Jewish leaders who wanted to stone him, they don't say, wow, this guy now has the power of life and death. Maybe he is the Son of God. It makes them even angrier. And they don't just get angry at Jesus. We'll see this in a few weeks. They also get angry at, at Lazarus for coming back to life. Go figure. You should have stayed dead because he becomes a threat to them. We'll see that. We'll clarify that when we get to it. But he said, look, I'm going back. I'm going for your sakes. It's for your sake that I wasn't there when he was just sick. I'm going so that you may believe and let us go to him. And Thomas says to the other disciples, you'd think Peter would have said this. Thomas says, doubting Thomas, the one who later won't even believe until he touches his hands, he says, and touches his side. But, but Thomas says, look, let's go. If he's going to go back and die, we've been with him all this time, let's go and die with him. Let's go that we may die with him. You know, we live in a day that has become far too easy to be a Christian. We don't know anything about this. We don't worry tomorrow that we're going to go into our job and our boss is going to say, were you at Grace Baptist Church yesterday? Were you worshiping yesterday? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you a Christian? Then, then I'm done with you. You don't have a job anymore. No, we don't face that. We don't live in a day where, there's, where we're walking down the street and, and somebody says, wait a minute, I heard you were a Christian we don't stone you because you follow that man, Christ. I mean, quite honestly, most people, if you tell them, well, I'm a Christian, they'll yawn at best. Or at worst, maybe. They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about you guys. <laughs> Bunch of hypocrites. You know, I've heard about you guys. You live one way on Sunday morning for about an hour or two hours, maybe. Maybe even another hour on Sunday night, but then the rest of the week, you're just like me. I've heard about you guys. There's no danger. There's no threat. There's no real loss, worldly speaking, to being a believer. That may be changing. That may be changing. I remember young in my young ministry when I was preaching, I, I always went back and, and drew out things from you know, communist countries and people who suffered there and, and people who were, uh, were, were somewhat dealt with there. And, and that's getting closer and closer to where we are. Every day there's some new indicator that, that God really is a non-entity to the majority of our country. That Jesus Christ really is just a, a figment they think, of some people's imaginations. There really is an indication showing that, that, that there is going to come a time when probably 
it won't be quite as easy to follow Christ as perhaps it is now, and certainly as it has been in days gone by. I'm, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so I'll make that very clear here. But, but I do believe there are signs that show that, that we may come to a time, even in our lifetime. I used to think maybe my kids, maybe my grandkids' generation, or maybe the one after them, they might see this kind of thing. Now I'm beginning to think even though I'm entering into that phase of life that is older, that maybe I might even see it in my lifetime. Where there might be a time where you'd have to say, well, look, let's just go and let's worship and let's be obedient and let's evangelize and let's do missions and we may die with him because of it. We certainly may suffer loss. We certainly may suffer antagonism. We certainly may suffer even in our work in our schools. But will we be willing to say with Thomas, let's go. Let's follow. Let's be obedient. That's really a big question. It's really an important question. It's comfortable across the Jordan. It's comfortable to be cloistered away with Jesus. Just enjoying the fellowship. The disciples knew that. They enjoyed that. It's comfortable. It's getting less comfortable to take it out to the world. But Jesus, just as he did with those disciples, when he said, okay, let's get up. And let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to Bethany. Let's go back to the region of Jerusalem. Because that's where we've got to see the glory of God manifested. He says to you and me, let's go back to our schools. Let's go back to our jobs. Let's go back into our communities with the gospel. Don't just cloister here at Grace. I mean, I love this. I love being here. This is I look forward to Sunday every week. I live for this day. I can't wait for this day. It's glorious to sing these songs and hymns together and, and pray together and read the Scripture together and worship together and study God's Word. I love it every week. But this is not the end all, folks. This is to be the fuel that takes us back out there. This is to be the fuel that gets us in comfortable, friendly territory to prepare us to go into enemy territory with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we can't just be comfortable sitting, enjoying. Worshiping is important. Don't you, You'll never hear me say it's not important. It is vital, but it's vital as fuel to get us back out there. Because there's a world out there that is less and less and less seeing the glory of God and seeing the Son of God glorified, lifted up by His people. And we're called to take it. We're called to be the waiters that deliver it. We're called to be the ones who live it 
See, God, Jesus could go back to, to Bethany and, and what he's going to do in just a, a, a little later in the same chapter. He's going to do a miracle that is going to glorify God. He's going to do a miracle that will glorify the Son of God and show who he is. That's not how we do it. We do it by reflecting his glory, by reflecting his truth, by showing the world that what he has done in our life is reality. It's not a, it's not a religious pipe dream. It's not, a, it's not some kind of a, a fantasy world we live in, but it's reality that he has changed us from the inside out. He has changed us from dead to life, just like he will do with Lazarus. He has given us a new life and, and made us a new creation and through that new creation, shining will be the light reflecting off of us to a dark, dark, darkening world. Will we say with Thomas? Let's go. Let's go. Let's follow him where he takes us. Let's go. Let's be obedient to him no matter what the cost. We may have to die for him and die with him. But let's go. There's a cost to be paid. There's a life to be lived. The old catechism. First, first question. What is the chief end of man? It's to know and glorify God forever. That's chief end of man, all men, it's especially the chief end of every believer to know God, to love God, to follow Him, and to glorify Him forever. Let's go. Let's go. Even if we have to die with him, may we glorify him forever. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed as we pray, as God is working in your life, Maybe it's to call you to himself for salvation. I invite you to Christ today. Maybe it's to come and unite with this covenant family on the basis of a covenant relationship in Christ as a believer. Maybe it's just to ask yourself where you're sitting right now, where you'll be standing in a moment. Can I be Thomas? Can I say, let's follow him wherever he goes? Consider that. Ponder that. Not just this moment, but for this week. As we seek obedience. As we seek to know him better. Father, do your work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.